Amen. Please be seated. As you are turning in your Bibles to Titus or looking there on the outline where I have the text printed, I'll alert you to the update regarding our acoustic resolution situation. We've been taking it uh, very carefully to make sure that we don't harm the beauty of the acoustics at the same time, increase intelligibility and uh, reduce ambient noise, things of that nature. So what we are going to do, you can see that the sprinkler heads have been lowered. There will be a coating applied to the dome, three-quarter inch, that will help absorb some of the sound. We're at about 4.8 in our reverb, which is almost twice as much as you need for speaking purposes. So that will reduce it some, and we'll make a, some tweaks to the sound system that will help, and then we'll assess after that. So we'll go incrementally to make sure that we don't uh, lower the reverb too much but at the same time, uh, be sure that we keep our priority on being able to teach and preach the Word of God. So this is important to balance these both. So that will be happening this week, and so next week you'll see some uh, results immediately, and we'll continue to tweak as we go. Giving praise to God for this challenge working that way instead of trying to go the other direction and increase reverb. Now, with that being said, and more importantly, now we're on the Word of God and the study thereof, verses 10 through 16 of Titus. Titus is a book written by Paul to a, a pastor who has been uh, left in Crete to set in order those things that remain to be put in order. Uh, Timothy would be a similar comparison to this book of Titus. Uh, the main difference being Titus is writing to a, a younger church, a church which, with less background in the things of God. Uh, Crete is the southernmost island in Greece, and so there's a more secularized culture uh, then Ephesus, at least for the church in Ephesus, uh, being more mature with more mature believers. Titus is not this way, and so uh, there's specific focus that has to be spent uh, by Paul to train Titus to do the work of building the church there by appointing elders. And we mentioned last week uh, the qualifications of an elder, and it leads right into the text today. Uh, one of the chief tasks of the eldership is to address error as it arises in the church and around the church. It's difficult sometimes to surmise as to whether this is speaking of homegrown error or if it's error in the culture that has made its way in. Whatever the case, elders are the first line of defense against this error in the church. And we'll see that commanded of the eldership, but certainly the people of the church must be aware of this dynamic that approaches every church in every age. Hear God's word, Titus 1. I'll start with verse 9 for context and read to verse 16. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, 
but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for this further warning against erroneous, uh, false teaching in the church. Lord, we are struck by how often this is mentioned in the epistles, so we recognize that even a day of non-confrontation in pulpits, uh, that this is a problem that will confront every church in every age, and we have to be vigilant about it. And I pray that you would make the elders of our church careful watchmen, careful guarding shepherds, and make the people of this church aware and ready to study your word and to test all things to see if it is true. Lord, I pray that you would guide and direct this time together, that any word I might speak that is not according to your word may fall away from the listener's ear. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are definitely in an age of non-confrontation as a result to the church, result as it regards the church. In fact, most of the books today written about how to grow your church, one of the main tenets is to not confront people too harshly, lest they may not feel as good about themselves and not come back. And that has worked because churches have grown in number, no doubt. They've been expanding. So there's no question that this practice will serve to put more people in the pews or the seats, as it were. But you know, as you study the New Testament, you see over and over again the consistent confrontation of error. It always comes with outreach and expansion. It's not just people sitting back and complaining or confronting, but as the church grows and makes inroads and affects culture, sees people come to Christ, all the things that Paul's laboring for, that the elect might be brought in, at the same time the church is always at its healthiest, at its strongest, confronting error as it rises up, as it comes, and it always does. But think about just the New Testament landscape and in the church after it. Uh, Jesus confronts the religious leaders with their their messing up of the clarity of the gospel message. That's much of his ministry is spent that way. Paul then takes his lead from the Savior and does the same as he confronts error that's happening in the churches in the letters he writes to the churches, but also confronts the culture on Mars Hill with the error of its days. The apostles carried this on as a whole. Uh, Then one of the disciples of John the Apostle, Polycarp, he himself confronted the error of a Bible-denying Marcion in the early 2nd century. Athanasius confronted the man-centered gospel of Pelagius in the 4th century. Augustine confronted Arius concerning the error of saying that Jesus was not, in fact, God in the same century as Augustine, as an Athanasius. The councils of Nicaea, of Constantinople, of Ephesus, Chalcedon, Orange, all confronted error that had crept up in or around the church. And that was a golden era of the church's life because of its expansion and its confrontation of error as it went forth. This is when the church is its strongest. Mere expansion in numbers could be false growth. Confronting error, however, in conjunction with expansion always accompanies the blessing of God. The apostles in the Nicene Creed, creeds we repeat with regularity here at church, these are creeds that were formulated to affirm what we believe the scripture says and to confront error that had crept in in various eras of the church's life. Martin Luther confronted the works, righteousness, Pope-ruled Roman church with the biblical doctrine 
of justification by faith in the 16th century. Closer to our time, J. Gresham Machen confronted the anti-supernatural, anti-biblical inerrancy teaching of the liberals in the 20th century. The norm for the church of Jesus Christ is to recognize erroneous teaching and to confront it. This is the essence of Paul's words to Titus here before us today. And we see that by connection, elders, even in the local church, not just on that macro level, but on the micro level, elders must be aware of erroneous teaching that manifests itself in the church and confront it. Now, first of all, let's recognize in verse 10, this side of heaven, error will constantly confront the church. Verse 10, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. But look at the first few words of verse 10. There are many. And keep in mind, this is the first century still, just a few years removed from Jesus' ascension, and there are already many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers. The issue of error in the church or confronting error in the church will always be a problem in every age. It's actually part of God's design to strengthen the core of the church by causing it to have to define again what the Bible says each time it confronts error when it arises. Uh, Jesus said in Matthew 7, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Jesus warns us of this. And so confronting error ought not uh, to be our soul-defining feature by any means, but it is something we ought to always be about in the church. Non-confrontationalism, the whole idea that we should never confront anything or oppose or refute or rebuke something is anomalous in the life of the church and it always shows a weakness in that epoch of the church's history. Listen to the responses of this country's largest church, the pastor of the largest church in this country, called an evangelical church, listen to his responses when Larry King asks him what I would say are some pretty simple questions. Larry King was trying to ascertain the pastor's view of who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. Church can't speak on this. What can it speak on? King said, what if you're Jewish or Muslim and you don't accept Christ? The pastor said, you know, I'm very careful about saying who would and wouldn't go to heaven. I don't know. King says, if you believe you have to believe in Christ, then they're wrong, aren't they? The pastor replies, well, I don't know if I believe they're wrong, but I just think that only God will judge a person's heart. King said, you don't call them sinners? I don't, the pastor says. Is that a word you don't use, King perceptively asks. I don't use it, the pastor says. So then a Jew is not going to heaven. King prods on. No, here's my thing, Larry, the pastor says, is I can't judge somebody's heart, you know. Only God can look at somebody's heart, and so I don't know. To me, it's not my business to say, you know, that one isn't in or one isn't. And I just, I think it's wrong when you go about saying that you're, saying that you're going and you're not going, and, because it's not exactly my way. I just, and King interrupts, what about atheists? <laughs> you know what? I'm going to let someone, I'm going to let God be the judge who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. You know, the modern picture of non-confrontational pastors and churches is a total anomaly in the life of the healthy church. It's a sign not of charity and love, but of gross unfaithfulness. 
The church is called to confront error with love, no doubt, but to confront error. Look at verse 11. Those who are teaching this error, they must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply. And notice that they may be sound in the faith. You have a mixture here of within and without. You have people among the church speaking these things, and maybe perhaps people outside the church uh, independently ministering, if you will, teaching or preaching a message that looks pseudo-Christian. So from within and from without, these errors arise, and they upset whole families. And literally, this is the word oikos, which is households. And some say maybe even house churches that were in existence then. So whole families, at least, are upset by this erroneous teaching that comes from within and from without. And you can be warned that when a ministry is independent of a church or independent of an authority structure, that there can be a problem with accountability that can cause upsetting, erroneous teaching. And you know, the apostles give us clear warning about this. Warn us that this would happen. Paul, in Acts chapter 20, he's telling the elders uh, about establishing the church and strengthening the church. And listen to what he says. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know, Paul says, that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Jude similarly says, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. You hopefully remember as we went through 2 Peter that the whole second chapter of 2 Peter is devoted to dealing with false teaching that arises. And I did a quick perusal of the New Testament. In every book in the New Testament, there is at least implicit or very explicit direction with how to handle erroneous teaching, false teaching. It's just too pervasive. And I think the reason why we're so scared of it in our day or there's so little of it in our day is that we have just picked and choosed portions that we'll preach and teach and just leave the hard stuff out. And as a result, we've so watered down the gospel that no one knows what anything means anymore. Titus is warned that this will happen. It's happened yesteryear. It'll happen tomorrow before Christ comes back. One of the great points of strength the church can have is to confront this. Note how Paul describes the teachers of error. Look at verse 9 of our text. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. So sound doctrine is the key uh, focus or standard. Sound doctrine coming from the teaching of the apostles, which is the scripture for us as as we have it in complete form. So to be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Verse 10. For there are many, and look at the description, insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers. Take those terms. First of all, they're insubordinate. And this is key and crucial to identifying a teacher of error. That is, insubordinate means they're rebellious. Uh, But maybe more subtly, they're just not subject to rule or accountability or authority. They're kind of out there independently, floating on their own, doing their own thing. They're not... 
their message is not held accountable by anybody. They don't have a board that's deciding if what they say is in line with Scripture or with anything else. And so they are insubordinate. They don't subordinate themselves to someone else. They won't put themselves under authority. Uh, They're empty talkers. That is, since they have no standard to be held accountable to, what they say uh, ends up meaning nothing. It's powerless. It's it's fruitless discourse. It's, It's hot air. Lots of it. They're deceivers. It could be knowingly or unknowingly. They, what they're saying has no power to save, no power to change because it's not accountable to the word of God. And so it deceives people into false security or even false guilt or falsity in general. Notice verse 11. They must be silent since they are upsetting whole families. So they have effect on whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Usually this refers to some kind of monetary gain or some, some prestige or something that comes to them in a temporal way that's the shameful gain that they're going after by teaching what they teach. Now look at verse 12 and verse 13. As I thought this was pretty hard of Paul. I mean, I, I wouldn't choose this as probably a way to, to, to butter up my audience, but look at verse 12. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Paul says this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Now, the reason Paul does this is he's speaking to Titus and he's warning Titus that the culture you're going into has been described by one of their own in this way. And we know as we research this quote that Epimenides is the person who's spoken of a sixth century prophet or teacher of the Cretans. And there was a pride that went with all the lying that went on in conducting their business. If you think of where they are geographically and and ships going across the southern part of Greece would stop at Crete and it became this place that was like a marketplace and and people were salesmen and unethical salesmen and they would say anything to sell and it, it kind of took on this whole personality and this culture. Everyone knew about Crete. In fact, to Cretanize meant to lie. That's literally what it meant in those days and the way the Greek language came to mean just that. So Paul's simply saying that, listen, this culture really has a problem with this issue. So you've got to be aware of it. So when you hear something, it could be that that culture is producing a use of God for the purpose of selfish gain. In other words, the culture itself promotes a certain kind of living. And someone might see the gospel or a message about God and say, hey, we can make money off that too. You can make money off anything. But we can make money off of that as well. And so let's use some of that to make money. Do you don't think that happens today? Happens all the time. In fact, to hear a lot of modern non-confrontational preachers today, they'll justify what they're doing as, hey, listen, GE does that. Or this company does that. We're just doing, we're just, we're just applying those principles for God. All the way to the bank. So Paul here is quoting one of their own, speaking in a way that people know the way it is. And you know how it is, brothers and sisters, when people talk about what place in this country? Vegas. Or fill in the blank. But Vegas. What happens in Vegas, right? Stays in Vegas. That's a big joke. Ha ha. Same thing with Crete. It was known. People understood. The culture it was part of. And so Titus is warned that there will be those who will have use of that culture for their own gain, and they'll even use some of the message of God to get rich. Verse 11, by teaching for shameful gain 
what they ought not to teach. And what they ought not to teach is put opposed to sound doctrine. Hampton Keithley said, these people viewed the flock of God as a source of wealth to be exploited rather than a trust to be protected. Your money in my pocket is what I see when you come through the door. And if I can keep you feeling good, well, that's a bonus. But in the end, this is big revenue. And so they say whatever they have to say to tickle as many itching ears as possible. Verse 15, but both in their minds and their consciousness are defiled. In other words, uh, they're warped with their desire for position, for power, for praise, for possessions, in such a way that they'll say anything to keep those things going and promoted. Verse 16, they profess to know God, that's what they say, but they deny him with their works when you really analyze what they're about. They're detestable. They're disobedient. And they're surely unfit for any good work. This is the description Paul gives. Now, let's consider this passage in as practical terms as we can by understanding first that there are various kinds of errors that manifest themselves in the church. And legalism tends to be the most common, so I want to address that. But you can even see in the text that several different possible errors are alluded to. But consider for a moment the different errors. All errors that confront the church are related to a mishandling of the word of God in some way, shape, or form. The first one. Uh, the misinterpretation of the Bible, which automatically will lead to the misapplication of the same. Now, these could be various things. They're not a matter, matters that necessarily strike at the vitals of our relationship with Christ. They're just disagreements we have as Christians. Uh, but we have to admit, you know, we have different positions on things as brothers and sisters in Christ. And one's right and one's wrong. And so when we have a misinterpretation of something, let's say, for instance, you're in a church that thinks there's ongoing revelation that God is giving and that it's not closed with the scripture, but God could cause you to speak in a language that would give further revelation. And we'd say that's an error from our perspective because if you take that, then that could lead to misapplication of that idea and maybe some misguidance that people could have by thinking that God has told them something different than what he's already revealed. Or just even more simply, you know, we practice baptism one way, another brother or sister in Christ might practice another way. I would submit to you, one's right, one's wrong. We think we're right, they think they're right. One's misapplying. This is com- Every Christian is, foc- or is faced with this because we err. We are sinners. We are unable to totally understand the will of God this side of heaven. We do our best. But misinterpretation of the Bible, this causes misapplication. We see that. That's one form of error that comes into our lives. Some of it's unavoidable this side of heaven. But more serious is the denial then of key biblical teachings. This would be another level of error that becomes more and more serious. In other words, the Bible teaches there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Uh, But we'll add to that a priesthood that will get us closer access or saints that will give us direct our access. And we add to the mediatorial role of Jesus and we reduce the sufficiency and the effectiveness of Jesus in the process. And that becomes more and more serious is Jesus becomes obscured and other things become on level par eventually with him. Or you could even say, see the error that happens when we start looking at the Bible as just another book. It's rather than God-breathed revelation, God's will to us that we believe he has kept free from error, has given us as the authority for our life and practice, and he also has made sufficient for all the issues that will face us. But if you start at the beginning and say it's not God-breathed, then flowing from that, becomes a line of searches elsewhere other than the Bible for answers to our life and faith. 
So denial of key biblical teachings are certainly part of the error that creeps in. And maybe uniting these two or seeing these two come together, we have the third and what I think is most common error that faces every Christian in every church is the error of legalism that approaches us, that faces us. Look at verse 14 and verse 15 because I think this is what the apostle is alluding to, adding to the Bible in essence. Verse 14, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths, which are extra-biblical, and the commands of people, that's extra-biblical, that means the Bible doesn't say it, but their commands people make up, who turn away from the truth, the truth being the scripture, so they turn to myths, so they turn to commands of people. In verse 15, to the pure all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure, simply saying that it's not the external stuff, it's the defilement of our hearts that makes the external stuff bad, or us misuse the external stuff. But the erroneous teacher will say it's the stuff, That's evil, so stay away from it. And it adds a command of man that seems so subtle, seems so holy, but it's actually a legalism. And really, what is legalism? Legalism is faith in legality, faith in rules, faith in a way of doing things. It's a faith in something that we are doing or we are committing to God in our minds. You know, the word legalism doesn't even occur in the Bible. It's essentially a performance-based relationship with God. Legalism comes in several forms. But ultimately, it is faith in legality, faith in rule-keeping, faith in morals, which reduces one's true faith and trust in the finished work of Christ because they're trusting something else. Think of these different forms of legalism. First, salvation by works. This form says that there's something in addition to the work of Christ on Calvary that we must do to be included in God's salvation. Something else. It could be circumcision like it was in the Old Testament, baptism today. It could be membership in a particular church or doing a certain thing or a certain rite or way of passage. That thing is your security now. You're not just saved by the work of Christ, but by Christ plus something else. Most of us in a Reformed church anyways would say, oh, well, we don't believe that. We know that's not true. Solus Christus, Christ alone. But there's other more subtle forms. Approval by performance would be another form of legality. In other words, the form of legalism that says that we gain God's approval after we've already become a Christian. We gain his approval based on reaching a level of spiritual performance. We read our Bible a certain amount of time every day. We pray a certain amount of time every day. We write in our journal certain things. Or we share Christ with certain people. And we start to believe as we do those things, God loves us just a little more. Not a lot more than someone who doesn't do them. Just a little more. That's legalism. That we think we're better because we're doing something that someone else isn't. Or we're doing something that ought to make God proud of us. This is much more common for all of us. It's seeking for ourselves a sense that God is smiling on us. And that others approve of us because of our spirituality that we've been able to evidence. There's another form of legalism. It's found among those individuals who feel that they must usurp the role of the Holy Spirit. I call them dogmatic dictators. It's a balance between being mutually accountable to the body of Christ, no doubt, but then there's another one where you have the pastor or the leader telling you all sorts of rules and do's and don'ts you can't do and constantly berates you over them until you are so humbled by it and so overburdened by it that you you can't hardly function, let alone live unto God in a joyous way. You know what I'm talking about. This is the list of rules that are not in the Bible that are made up and preached from pulpits as though they are the word of God. 
Brothers and sisters, each of us, each of us are unable to have a relationship with God because of our sin. We are dead in our sins. God makes us alive together with himself through Christ. It's totally and utterly the work of God. I can't do nothing to add to this. But what I must grasp and what I believe is at stake here by confronting such error, I must grasp that there's still nothing, the other side of salvation that I can do that can make me more accepted to God than what Christ has already done. I I cannot read my Bible more and make God love me more because he already loves me as much as God can love me in Christ. And by even thinking that if I just read my Bible more, if I just witnessed to more people, or if I just did this or memorized that or, or gave more money to the church, if I just did those things... God will love me more. I'm basically cheapening the work of Christ. I'm saying that it wasn't enough what Jesus did to make you love me, God. I've got to do something else. And I'm saying the cross does not mean what God says it means. I don't know what you struggle with. I guarantee you've got a sin. For me, it's always been self-control. I eat too much. I do this too much. I do that too much. And being heavier is always, for me, just a sign of a reminder of my lack of self-control. And I can tell you that there have been times in my life where I thought, I think God loves people that are thinner a little bit more. I know that's funny to you who look, but what's your sin? What's your thing that you struggle with? And I don't mean, I mean just those issues that I know as I commit those sins, I think God, I just went down a notch. I look at someone else as God together. God must love them more. And you think that about some sin that you keep secret, that God doesn't love you because you're doing that. Listen, God's your father, and he may not be happy with what you're doing because you're his child. But brother, sister, he loves you like he loves his son. Legalism tells us that if we just do this, if we just do that, God will love us a bit more. And no one could keep running on that hamster's wheel. Your heart will give out. But as you come to rest in the grace that is truly yours in Christ, the things, the activities, the actions, the obedience comes in reaction now. That's living by grace. Legalism so cheapens the work of our Lord Jesus if it doesn't nullify it altogether. And this is really the issue that is being confronted. Such errors must be dealt with directly and decisively for the sake of the purity of the church and the gospel of Christ. The church is the steward of the gospel. Uh, The the gospel goes forth because God gives that message to this jar of clay called the church and he teaches people the grace of Christ that I've just expressed to you. We have to live it. We have to teach it. We have to walk it. And because of that, we have to be vigilant against error that would creep in and somehow obscure the Lord Jesus. What are we to do? It says very clearly, verse 11, they must be silenced. Literally, they must be bridled. They must be muzzled. They are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. So the first thing the elders must be lead is a silencing of such error. It must be stopped. But secondly, in verse 9, they must be rebuked. In verse 13, similarly, look at verse 9 first. So that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So rebuke, uh, rebuff, refute it. Verse 13, therefore, rebuke them sharply. It doesn't say uh, discuss, have a dialogue with them or discuss. It says rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. And that's the third point that I want to mention. This is always true in confrontation, in discipline, that restoration is also important of the individual, that they may be sound in the faith. So maybe that person who 
is in error, who is outside of the faith, might be brought into a soundness in the faith as they are confronted, as they are rebuked, as they are refuted. So silencing, rebuking, and restoring, this is all the process we take to confront. Personal restoration is important as well, we must remember. Brothers and sisters, the church must be aware of erroneous teaching that manifests itself, and it must be confronted. One of my favorite pictures in the New Testament is uh, really a message to the preachers who will take God's word and open it up unto people. It's when the Lord Jesus gets done feeding the 5,000, this huge miracle, talk about something that would draw the crowds in. And they follow him, and they, they get in ships and follow him, and they won't leave him alone. And so Jesus, his church growth mechanism to capitalize on all those people who are now following him is to give this, these following words. Jesus says, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Huh? Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in him and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he says, as people just ate bread and and fish and, and they're full, and whoever feeds on me, he says, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died, Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever, speaking of himself. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of the disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? He didn't say, I'm sorry. I didn't mean that. It was a little hard, I know. He said, do you take offense at that? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. I'm telling you the truth, guys. you got to hear it is what he's saying to them. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning, it says in the text, who those who who, who did not believe. And some of you among, among us will betray me. Verse 65, and he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted to him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, who were left, basically, do you want to go away as well? By the way, I mean, are you going to find this in any book today about how to grow a church? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, where are we going to go? We're out here in Capernaum with you. Even he's not saying, yeah, Lord, we believe you. We don't care. He's saying, we got nowhere else to go. But then he says wisely, Peter, in response, Lord, you do have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jim Eliff says very poignantly that when is the last time you heard spoke the gospel in such a way that people said, this is a hard teaching, who can accept it? And then watch them turn on their heels and walk out. Yet that is what they did to Christ. This was not an isolated experience for the greatest evangelist. This persistent clashing of words and worldviews continued unabated all the way up to the cross. He brought a sword, not peace. Self-manipulating such violent rejection of the gospel for the sake of proving one's spiritual verve is unthinkable. 
Yet we must ask the question, could it be possible that we have improved the gospel beyond what Jesus ever knew? Can we now outsell the master? There will always be a confrontation of error that arises and it's necessary and it's a healthy part of our church's life. My mentor took a church outside of uh, Pittsburgh. It was a dying steel town, the little town where his church was. And it used to be a huge church, but as the industry left, so did the people. And the church had about 100 members when he took the church. There were five elders that were there. All of them were retirement age, considerably beyond retirement age, actually. Two of them were members of the Freemasons. Now, I know there's a variety of Freemasons, but these in particular definitely had uh, unbiblical views of prayer and God and all the various uh, possible inroads to error one could have, they had them. And they actually had their wives meet uh, in, in this kind of closed-door secret ceremony, and they would set up a plant, the amaranth, and they would pray around this plant in one of the church rooms. So my mentor immediately went to the elders, the two whose wives were leading this, and said, we can't have this in the church. just can't have it. And I would love to tell you, brothers and sisters, that when he confronted it, God rewarded him, and they repented. And then the church grew exponentially. But you know what happened? A third of the church left with the two elders who would not take down the plant. And the church has never really recovered numerically from that. So what? God's people are there. And the gospel's going out in just the way God would want it to go out. This is not a judgmental group. He's not even hyper-confrontational. He just simply said we can't have idol worship in the church. Sometimes God, God always blesses that kind of faithfulness, but it's not always with numbers. Brothers and sisters, we have a task before us, and it ought to be one that we rely upon the Lord for. Being aware of erroneous teaching that would rob the Lord Jesus in some way. At least rob the message of his effectiveness and what he has done for us on the cross. Because that hurts people. Confidence must come in Christ. So he must be preached with purity. So when it comes up, we have to be willing to confront it. Let us pray. Lord, I thank you for your sure word. Thank you for how you have saved us. Lord, forgive us for pride, for arrogance, for any way we think we've contributed to our standing with you. Lord, we throw ourselves at the Savior's feet, knowing he is totally worthy that you love him so much, that your love for us is not dependent on our ups and downs spiritually, but dependent on your everlasting love for the Son, to whom we are united by faith. Lord, may that be the impetus, the drive, the motivation for a walk with you that is vibrant, that sees others come to faith in Jesus. Lord, I do pray that you would bring more to us that we could share this message with. But Lord, more than that, I pray that you keep us faithful to the gospel, to you. Make us faithful stewards. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.